Hey there, and welcome back to Crypto Clarified, investing in the truth. This is a podcast series where we come together to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends from the crypto space. My name is Benjamin Dean, and I'm director in Wisdom Tree's digital assets team. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by Morgan Krupeski, the director of business development at Ava Labs. Uh, before I ask Morgan to, to introduce herself, we've got a few things, a bit of housekeeping. First of all, the social, social media shout outs. You can find me on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. If you're in the US and you're a listener, join the waitlist to Wisdom Tree Prime, wisdomtreeprime.com. And uh, regardless of where you're listening or watching this, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever, hit the subscribe button because that means that you get up-to-date postings as we release new content. For today's episode, we're going to speak with Morgan about Avalanche. We're going to go over what Avalanche is and what Ava Labs is. We're going to talk about the ecosystem, differentiating features, some institutional use cases. And then, as always, we'll finish up with a look towards the future to what developments uh, Morgan at Avalanche sees, but also just more broadly in, in the crypto space, which, as we know, is constantly changing and can be hard to keep track of. Before we get into the episode, I've got to give my shout out to James and Sam in compliance. I need to state the following. To clarify, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Ava Labs and subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. Now onto the fun stuff. Morgan, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it. So to kick off these episodes, we usually uh, give guests a chance to, to introduce themselves a little bit. It could be as personal as you want. Uh, How did you get involved in this space? When was it? Why? And uh, what are you doing now that you're at Ava Labs? Sure. So, um, like you mentioned, I'm director of business development for Av Labs, um, and in particular, I focus on uh, the institutions and capital markets. Um, before Av Labs, I was in traditional finance um, at a bulge bracket bank for 12 years. Most of that time was spent within uh, the institutional sales and trading business, covering hedge funds, asset managers like Wisdom Tree, pension funds. Um, for foreign exchange and macro derivatives products. Uh, and then the last two years I spent actually as chief of staff to the firm's chief compliance officer. So really appreciate the, uh, the disclosures you gave at the beginning of the session. Um, now at, at Ava Labs, um, in my role in partnering with different institutions, um, you know, I really work with kind of the whole spectrum of different types of financial services institutions. So banks, asset managers, hedge funds, private equity firms, um, venture funds, and then the more crypto native versions of those things to, um, at a very high level, invest in, build on, use or deploy capital into Avalanche in some way, shape or form. So we're really trying to kind of drive forward the growth and adoption of the Avalanche blockchain, which obviously we'll go into in a little bit. Um, in terms of you know, what really prompted my move. Um, for me, it was really kind of discovering the capabilities of smart contracts and really being embedded in the traditional financial services space where I kind of saw firsthand what using smart contracts and smart contract capabilities could mean for 
whether it was uh, actually trading, premium settlements, margin uh, exchange, um, you know, all these different kind of middle and back office functionalities that inherently could could be improved through using smart contracts and blockchain technology. And, and oftentimes these aren't necessarily like the exciting use cases that a lot of people kind of think about when they think about the technology, but I almost think these are the more like impactful things that personally I'm really excited about. Um, and so that's kind of what really drove my move into this space. And, and in this position, I'm kind of um, helping to pull institutions along uh, on their journeys um, in a very kind of high touch, uh, trusted advisor type of way. So really, you know, it's been, it's been an awesome journey. Um, we're super, you know, super busy despite kind of macro market conditions um, and really excited for, for what's to come. So a reformed finance person, but you could only escape just so far uh, via role in compliance. You're not a reformed compliance person though, right? I mean, we love <laughs> compliance on this episode as I you already compliance. see. Yeah, we, <laughs> nobody loves compliance more than me. So I'm glad we're on the same page there. But I did notice, and you'll have to forgive my originally Australian accent, because I was saying Ava Labs with a strong A, but you said Ava Labs, like lava. So we've already learned something so far that uh, I didn't know how to pronounce Ava Labs, but yeah. uh, that won't happen again. I promise it won't happen. No worries. I, I hear it all. I hear it all. So um, no problem at all. Now, what's kind of interesting there is, you know, coming from a finance background, you could see that these smart contracts, automated computer scripts might have some potential in, in automating some of the back office functions. And we hear that a lot, uh, both here at WisdomTree, but also just more broadly, a lot of folks coming across in finance. You don't have like a technical background per se, right? It's just, it seemed obvious that this is a few ways in which it could be used. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't have a technical background, but I've definitely learned a lot. Um, I think being kind of transitioning to this industry, you're constantly drinking from a fire hose that's like on fire. So um, it's definitely a steep learning curve. That's a consistently steep learning curve every day. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my experience previously, and frankly, I think that this is probably evident in whether it's any bank, any kind of um, financial services company, or frankly, any large corporate or corporation where things are inherently disparate, whether it's systems or ways of working and um, different functionalities that don't necessarily speak to each other and kind of seeing the ability for potentially all these disparate players, frankly, either whether it's teams within a specific company or different companies among a consortium within an industry, being kind of put together on some kind of shared responsibility platform and being able to see the end-to-end -end flow of, of whatever it is, whether it's a trade or other type of process, loan administration, whatever it is, in a way that um, doesn't... Uh, doesn't rely on one counterparty or one centralized counterparty to kind of be the arbiter of truth and be able to streamline certain processes in a way that um, just makes things more efficient and work better and faster and ultimately less error prone and, and kind of fraud proof. Got it. The reason I asked the original question is because sometimes I notice folks get scared away from the space because they think, oh, if I'm not technical, then I couldn't possibly understand it. It reminds me a little bit of when I, I worked in cybersecurity before coming 
over to this space. And we got the same response. It was a big debate about whether, you know, you could do cybersecurity if you weren't technical. And what's kind of interesting is it's something I learned from that experience. We were pulling in people from all different disciplines because you just didn't have enough cybersecurity people. And funny enough, yeah. it was like the psychology people who ended up being super useful because a lot of hacking takes advantage of, of people's psychology by fooling them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of just for listeners, for anyone who's out there who's saying, you know, the space is unapproachable because I'm not technical. It's, you know, mm -hmm. just don't let that hold you back because as Morgan's pointing out from her experience and certainly from mine, there's, uh, there's plenty yeah. of stuff to be done, plenty of understanding you can get that's unique. Uh, given, uh, yeah. as you say, all the different disparate backgrounds. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think maybe just to, to add to that point, I think on the one hand, in the grand scheme of things, it's still super early. And so it's, it's definitely not too late or, or, or what have you in terms of kind of getting involved um, in this space. And there's so much information out there in that um, you can, you know, if you put in the effort, you can kind of get up the learning curve and, and, become more technically inclined in that way. And frankly, I think, you know, having the technical capabilities is one thing and is great, but to the extent you can toe the line in the business world, whatever that business is, whether it's financial services or, or other web two or more traditional type of type of companies and use cases and kind of toe that line between that world and, and putting the tech to more practical use, that I think is extremely kind of valuable and being able to, you know, however you want to phrase it, toe the line, speak both languages, like whatever it is, is, is very useful and value add. And I think also um, just being able to simplify certain things and certain concepts. Like I think so many of us get so far lost in the rabbit hole that we, you know, look up and the rabbit holes like a dot. And we don't even realize that like we're even speaking in such technical terms, right? To be able to take a step back and simplify things like that, I almost feel like makes makes somebody that much more powerful um, and effective in the space. So very much echo everything you said. All right, let's try and use some of these skills now because we're going to turn to the part where we, we talk about what Avalanche is. Um, sure. We can kick off with kind of the history and where it came from. Um, you can talk about the, the relationship between Avalanche and other labs. Uh, and then maybe we'll see if we can skirt around the technical stuff without kind of losing too many people along the way. Sure. So um, Avalabs actually has extremely kind of deep embedded academic, academic roots. Um, it was founded by a Cornell computer science and distributed systems professor uh, named Emin Gunsir and his then PhD students, uh, Kevin Sekniki and Ted Yin. So today, Emin is Avalab's founder and CEO, and Kevin is our COO, and Ted is our chief protocol architect. Um, Emin has actually been in the space since like the beginning of cryptocurrencies. Uh, back in 2002, he actually created the first ever proof-of-work cryptocurrency and peer-to-peer e-cash system called Karma. Um, and even through today, he continues to be a notable thought leader in the space um, as well as an author, a lecturer, consultant, and advisor to everyone from kind of crypto projects, governments, central banks, Fortune 500 companies, and really everything in between. So again, deep embedded kind of academic roots. Um, and at Cornell, the team actually discovered a report that was published by a pseudonymous author called Team Rocket in 2018. Um, and this report is the thing that introduced what was called Avalanche Consensus. 
um, which is the third ever most novel consensus mechanism behind classical and Nakamoto. And we can kind of go into like why that's important and what that, what that means from a high level standpoint. But from there, the group went on to build out the avalanche protocol or the avalanche blockchain. Um, so as a public blockchain network, Avalanche was launched by the Avalanche Foundation uh, on mainnet in September of 2020. So in the grand scheme of things, it's still a relatively new platform compared to some of its peers. Um, and Avalanche in and of itself is a layer one EVM compatible, but really VM agnostic smart contracts platform for decentralized applications or dApps um, across many different use cases and verticals that your listeners may probably be more familiar with like DeFi, gaming, NFTs, enterprises, institutions, exchanges and wallets, and probably many use cases that we haven't even thought of yet, which we're we're very excited about. Um, And then Avalabs as a company is is a software company, and it's the licensed service provider to the Avalanche Foundation. Um, At a high level, Avalanche or Avalabs, builds infrastructure and tooling to really drive the growth and adoption of the Avalanche blockchain and ecosystem. And so what that means from a business development standpoint is really working with partners from across different industries to support them in their blockchain and digital asset journeys on Avalanche and in a trusted advisor capacity. So we help with everything from one-on-one partnerships, investments, facilitating connections with other ecosystem projects, technical support, go-to-market strategy, and advisory, so on and so forth. So it's pretty pretty all-encompassing, but at a high level, it's really to drive the growth and adoption um, of the chain itself. Nice. <clears throat> There's a few ideas to unpack here before we move on that might not be obvious to everyone who's listening. The first is the way in which kind of eminent, one of these people who contributed intellectual property into the space before Bitcoin. Like there's easily 40 to 50 years of technology history that predates Bitcoin's arrival. It didn't just arrive out of thin air. So there's that piece. And it's nice to see where Emmons had come to with this. I must have run into him a few times when I lived in New York. And uh, it's super interesting to see how, like, over time, this uh, dynamic of experimentation in the space has occurred. And as you say, Avalanche is a relatively new network. Um, it's, It's one of many different networks that now provide the kinds of services Mon associated with Ethereum previously but configured differently. There's the piece there where like you've got other labs. Um, remember like the Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have a Bitcoin company. You can't ring up the Bitcoin CEO and complain. What's interesting over time is to watch as foundations and companies themselves have started to crop up and develop and maintain this infrastructure. And the, the last piece you were saying there is kind of all the capabilities you have internally. It sounds like a software company. It doesn't sound like the kind of crazy crypto uh, stuff that fills up the headlines. Uh, there's some yeah. serious business development efforts going on with, with Avalanche, other labs, but also across the space. It's maybe not obvious to folks. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of times we'll be speaking with different partners, whether they're um, groups of builders or um, larger enterprises and institutions where they say, we don't have a you at so-and-so chain. And we don't have a a group that can kind of handhold us through the ideation and deployment process to really kind of set them up to succeed in their particular use case. And so I think for us um, in particular, and a 
big reason in terms of why I joined the team is because the team is this amazing mix of academics, engineers, and business people who are um, going about things in a very thoughtful and methodical way and really ensuring that, um, again, we set up our partners to succeed on Avalanche in whatever way is important to them or whichever way they need. Um, and so that's something that, you know, upon joining really, really resonated with me and something that I would, you know, definitely echo in terms of what you've, what you've just laid out. Cool. So we've got like some unique organizational characteristics. We've got, you know, some bright people behind it, some unique IP. There's a concept here called subnets that, uh, is, is one kind of interesting way in which the, the Avalanche network kind of differentiates itself. Let's kind of step quickly through what, what subnets are. What, what do they permit and you know, how is this different to other networks? Kind of the so what of subnets. Yeah, so I would say subnets are um, one of the two major differentiators of Avalanche versus, um, versus peers and it's enabled, or the concept of subnets is really enabled by the first differentiator, which is the avalanche consensus, which is what I mentioned earlier. But just to maybe quickly kind of emphasize as it relates to, to avalanche consensus and without going into too many details, um, the way that avalanche consensus works is something that really enables um, the speed, the scalability, the decentralization and customizability of the network. And at a high level, it's just extremely fast and enables sub-second transaction finality, which um, when you start talking about or thinking about financial services use cases, you can start to see why that's um, particularly relevant or, or important for those. Um, but the other big differentiator in terms of what you just referenced are subnets or subnetworks. Um, and practically the way that you can think about them are application specific or custom blockchains. Um, so what this means is that they can give users, developers, enterprises, governments, whoever it is that's building control over the parameters of the blockchain being deployed for their specific use case. Um, and we can kind of go into more of the details there in terms of what's possible. But at a high level, we think this is a really big step forward over a lot of the other existing blockchain models, which are generally more monolithic and essentially kind of enforce the same set of rules across the entire network. So at a practical level, using that kind of framework, you could have a simple NFT launch on the same chain as a multi-billion dollar loan between institutions that end up kind of being beholden to the same network logic and toolkit, which I don't think necessarily makes sense. So subnets really allow individual projects or builders or institutions, whoever it is, to control all layers of their platform um, in a way that's uh, isolated from other kind of components or other subnets on the network. Um, so this basically allows them to customize their particular blockchain for their particular use case. So it's everything from permissioning at the application level, or sorry, permissioning at the, um, at the user access level, permissioning at the validator level, um, whether it's public or private, permissioned or permissionless, which gas token they use to power the transactions on their network, which staking token they use, which virtual machine they build on. I know I mentioned earlier um, Avalanche, uh, the C-chain is, is EVM compatible, but 
you know, effectively Avalanche was built to be VM agnostic. So you can have different types of VMs or custom VMs being deployed on different, different subnets. Um, so all of these things basically can be customized to address the needs of whether it's a gaming company or a consulting firm or a government agency or a financial institution. Obviously, all of those different examples are going to have very different requirements, um, whether regulatory or otherwise. And so subnets really allow um, you know, the end deployers to, to be able to, to customize their blockchain for their particular use case. Does it make them interoperable? in the sense that if you're running on one subnet of the kind of coins or tokens that you issue on one, are they easily portable to others or are they really segregated in a sense? They just use the validator for consensus across all of the different subnets. So that's a really good question. And from a target state perspective, the network was always intended to be able to interoperate between, between and among subnets and between and among um, the C chain, which is a smart contract chain that generally is what people think about when they think about activity on Avalanche so far. Um, and so with that, that was always part of the vision to have interoperability and communication where and if needed. Because in some instances, you won't necessarily need that. In others, you'll require interoperability or communication between a certain set of subnets and in others it'll be totally permissionless from a communication standpoint so it just depends but long-winded way of saying yes there is definitely a component of communication and interoperability um, and we can talk about like what a practical use case of, of that would be but at a more technical level it's enabled by this thing called avalanche warp messaging which was actually introduced um, by our team AWM at the end of last year, um, which introduced subnet to subnet communication. Uh, and later this year, we'll have C chain to subnet communication, um, which is, again, has always been like a critical piece of the architecture um, of the Avalanche platform. Cool. So let's pull a few ideas out and then we can move on to use cases in the ecosystem because yeah. that'll like bring it into stark relief for folks. Well, what we've just gone over is sometimes read in the press that people will sit there and say like bitcoin is too slow uh it's it's too volatile it's, it's too expensive to do transactions and then they'll go the ethereum network it doesn't update fast enough for, for financial services the, the gas costs are too high it doesn't speak to other blockchains um, there over the years there are all these criticisms leveled against whatever kind of the big thing is um and then what happens is over time, kind of the software is developed, changed, it evolves. Remember, it's not static, right? It's not obvious to a lot of people. But what you essentially just said is that there was a perceived gap in the market a few years ago. One was around the speed and the cost of transactions solved via the avalanche consensus. Uh, second one there is around the use of subnets for kind of we've just talked about in interoperability, but customization uh, is the other part you, you mentioned. So it gives you different features compared to other networks, which permits different use cases in summary. And then so to close it out, as you said, it changes over time. So those capabilities are being built upon. Um, and then you've got other stuff happening in the ecosystem that you interact with as well. You mentioned EVM compatibility uh, you know, that wasn't a thing a few years ago, the EVM, Ethereum virtual machine. Think about it, listeners, as kind of just like a way in which you can port code across from one network to another 
Uh, it's a de facto standard almost uh, that has meant decreased development costs, increased compatibility across networks. So it's a lot in there, but there, there, there is a lot there that's not obvious to folks who think everything is Bitcoin, um, nor to yep. the folks who, who think that like you've got Ethereum and then a whole bunch of stuff that does the same thing. They do very, very different things, right? Yeah, totally. I, I, maybe right. I would just echo some of what you said, Ben, is that I think generally when you think about avalanche subnets and the major kind of um, major things that it can enable um, compared to some of its uh, peers, I'd say generally when we speak with enterprises or institutions, we kind of position subnets in truth as a way to kind of have the best of both the public permissionless chains um, that, that are out there and have all the native integrations that come with it, like on and off ramps and stable coins, other tokens, um, as well as with an enterprise chain. But a lot of them are very kind of more accustomed to building on in a way that A, doesn't defeat the purpose of being on, on a blockchain um, and B, still allows them to address a lot of the regulatory and other types of considerations that potentially have prohibited them or made them skeptical of deploying on public permissionless chains. So it's a way where you can kind of have your own sandbox environment to test out different proofs of concept, test out different use cases, but in a way that will enable you to open up your network and um, interoperate with other subnets if that, if that use case um, you know, allows for it or requires it. So it's kind of the best of both in that way, um, which is something that I think we're, we're really excited about, particularly given where we're at from you know, a macro, macro environment standpoint. Cool. Now, this is the part where like, somebody who's listening is going to start screaming at me like, you just need a SQL database with a key, private public key signing that you don't need a subnet, blockchain, anything. There is a kind of interesting part here that is not obvious, and, and let's run through it. Why you don't just set up your own database? Um, when you set up these networks and you have these standards and then everybody's kind of running on the same rails using the same software language and so on and so forth, you get an ecosystem developing, which are different companies and service providers and open source programming teams contributing to uh, not, not the Avalanche network itself, but all the stuff connected to it. Can you give us a quick rundown about like who was in this Avalanche ecosystem at the moment? Um, why did they turn up there? And if you've got any hints as to like wh where it might be going in the near term, if it's changed yep. at all. Yeah, so I'm happy to do that. And I definitely do want to review that. Um, I think maybe even just before we review kind of current state, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to um, go through like an illustrative example of what the power of subnets could bring um, yep. in a more kind of like retail oriented way. But going back to what you were saying also in terms of why don't you just use a database? Like, yes, there's many times when different partners come to us giving us a use case and we always challenge, you know, why do you need a blockchain for that? Um, and so a lot of it is, you know, back and forth and iterating on what exactly are you using blockchain technology for? Is that necessary? Are there certain parts of the process that make more sense being off-chain versus on-chain? So it is definitely um, 
kind of iterative. And, and in some cases, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Like not everything should be on chain and particularly not on a public permissionless chain. So it's definitely part of that kind of partnership process and, and, uh, and relationship. Um, but maybe to kind of use an illustrative example that, um, me, I, I hope resonates with you, but so my teammate, uh, Luigi Denorio DeMeo, he runs, um, our DeFi group. Uh, he always likes to kind of use the example of, of Pokemon, which again, none of, none of this is any indication of anything to come, but I think it's just an illustrative example. And I think a lot of people in the industry, the idea of the Pokemon great game, um, and franchise kind of resonates with them, but he likes are, to imagine. Are Pikachus involved? Will there be Pikachus? Okay, get ready for it. He wants to, <laughs> wants to imagine a Pikachu subnet, okay? So this Pikachu subnet has a game where you train your Pikachu, NFT, and it grows and it levels up and it allows you to battle other players live on the subnet. So the idea is that the more you play and win, the more reward tokens you earn could be in the form of stable coins, um, a Vox token, Bitcoin, a native token that they created, whatever it is. So in a world where that Pikachu subnet, let's say it gets 10% of all Pokemon users. So let's say it's nearly 10 million users to play, to play the game. That in and of itself is not ideal for the likes of Ethereum, Polygon, Solana, and frankly, the Avalanche C chain um, for that matter. So to do that would just be not a great idea because the players of the Pikachu game wouldn't want to be interrupted with higher fees or slower confirmation times because let's say Taylor Swift is dropping her new like NFTs on the chain as well. So because of that, the creators decided to build the Pikachu subnet to isolate the performance of the game in and of itself. Are you with me so far? You're reminding me of uh, the NFT summer when everyone started minting ape NFTs, and then it clogged up the Ethereum network to the point where nobody could use it for anything else. That's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. So, and and there you can insert whatever NFT drop, um, game, financial services transaction, to the extent that you can isolate some of these things from a performance standpoint. Um, that's one big kind of reason as to why um, a particular developer would want to develop on a subnet. But you know, ultimately. Let's say the developers of the Pikachu subnet, um, they have many options when deploying their subnet. So for example, they can choose to have USDC as the gas token with a Pika staking token or a Pika gas and staking token. So the possibilities are really endless in terms of kind of what they want to use to power those transactions and to stake, stake the network. Um, the idea is that, again, you have many of these choices. And if the Pikachu subnet were what we call an elastic subnet, you'd be able to have as many validators as you want buying and staking the token and staking it to earn rewards in the form of fees and inflation, kind of similar to Avalanche or Ethereum validators today. So basically you have your own blockchain where value accrues to you and your tokens, whatever tokens you choose to deploy. So now let's introduce AWM, Avalanche Warrant Messaging and this concept of interoperability. Again, AWM is the way that subnets talk to each other and the way that tokens get sent from subnet to subnet. So why does the Pikachu subnet care about AWM? So to put it simply, there are many integrations, DeFi apps, et cetera, available, for example, on the 
avalanche sea chain or the public permissionless chain that generally um, is what people think about when they think about activity on avalanche. Um, or potentially they want to use DeFi apps from other subnets um, where Pikachu subnet users want to take advantage of that. So some examples, let's go through some concrete examples. Let's say they want to leverage, the developers of the Pikachu subnet want to leverage chain link feeds on their subnet without working on getting a full integration for their own subnet. They can do that using AWM. Uh, maybe they don't want to deploy their own version of Trader Joe Liquidity Book or Uniswap V3 or whatever DEX um, on their subnet and would rather just let their 10 million users take advantage of the liquidity that's already present on the other applications elsewhere throughout the network. They can do that. Um, they may want to have you know, on and off ramps to centralized exchanges that are already available and integrated on the C chain. Um, that would be very costly, obviously, to obtain themselves for their own subnet. They can do that. And then lastly, and I mean, we can keep going, but lastly, let's say they want to collaborate with the Goku subnet and launch a promotional battle where they both try to grow their user bases and offer uh, the ability to move their NFTs across each other's networks. They can do that too. So there's a ton of, ton of different reasons in terms of how and why um, you, know, you have this interoperability and communication between subnets that you can start to see how you know, the network can scale in a way that is, um, that is, well, that is scalable um, in, in, in given the use of subnets. So they can essentially plug into others and um, rather than having to build a whole thing themselves, they just kind of click in and can get access mm -hmm. to other services that others provide. Um, exactly. Is, is that broadly where we're, we're angling at? Is this idea that everything connects to everything else and doesn't exist in isolation? Exactly. Exactly. And okay. it's and it's created right now to isolate performance of that specific thing. But to the extent that there's a need to or desire to leverage certain DeFi primitives or other integrations, that's all possible and doable through Avalanche Warp Messaging. I can see how that starts and that's maybe the segue into kind of traditional financial services because like there is kind of a wall up between the, the crypto space and the DeFi space um, like Uniswap. You know, there's not really many traditional financial service providers that can click in to, to Uniswap, although I am yeah. starting to see some kind of regulated tokens turning up on Uniswap these days. So that's changing in real time. Um, there is, of course, Ave Arc as well, which has like an institutional KYC um, whitelisted integration. So I could see then how, like, if you're in a financial services provider and you have certain regulatory and compliance requirements, uh, you need to know who the people are. Um, but you also want to interact with all of this other stuff in this, until now, relatively segregated DeFi space. Is that where we're kind yeah. of angling at? That uh, it gives you this interoperability at a technical level and, and starts to integrate the two the traditional financial players and then this growing DeFi, crypto gaming whatever it is it'll be something different in 18 months again this is this burgeoning alternative set of infrastructure yeah exactly i think um to that point and you were kind of alluding to it that frankly the way that a lot of permission DeFi works today is by enforcing permissioning at the application level. So you gave the example mm -hmm. of Ave Arc. But what that does is inherently fragments liquidity 
and defeats the purpose or the ability to have composability and interoperability between these different types of applications. And so what subnets allow you to do is actually bring that permissioning down to the subnet level or down to the chain level um, where applications themselves don't necessarily have to worry about the permissioning because that's already happened at the blockchain level. And so the idea would be for different types of um, permissioned users, whether it's accredited investors or qualified purchasers or certain institutions to go in and be permissioned one time and having access to what feels like a native DeFi experience in a way that um, they're, they know or they're comforted to know that whoever's on the other side of the trade has been KYC or KYB to the same extent that they've been. And so the subnet architecture is really uniquely positioned to be able to address some of those, uh, some of those requirements. Got it. Okay. Um, let's talk a bit then. We, we've touched on ecosystem here in, in the context of <clears throat> how these different app chains or different subnets speak, can speak to one another and how that's changing over time. In terms yeah. of like kind of real life use cases, like your day job, basically, who's banging on your door and asking about this in broad strokes? And uh, yeah. what I, mean, I know you've already said that it's kind of an iterative process where you sit down with them and help them think about what they really need. Um, but what, what are the kind of things they turn up and ask? And, and what are the, some of the things you've actually seen being deployed? Yeah, so maybe I'll just go through like three high level, um, three high level examples. Um, right. So in the first instance, we partnered with Deloitte um, on this platform called Close As You Go. And it's basically meant to get different um, government agencies onto the shared uh, shared accountability platform to get disaster relief uh, recovery funds to victims more quickly, efficiently, and with, with less um, potential for fraud. And so in this case, um, this is being built on a subnet. And if you look at the interface, it's very, it feels very web too. Someone logs in with um, traditional kind of login credentials. There's a wallet that's created on the back end, but from their standpoint, it looks very much like standard, you know, web web interface login credentials. And there is a valueless gas token that's powering the transactions on the network in a way that for a lot of regulated institutions, obviously they can't hold crypto. So this is a way that allows them to power the transactions without having any kind of cryptocurrency on their balance sheet. So that's at a high level one example. Another is um, a protocol that's being built using a kind of hybrid C-chain um, subnet model called RE, which is basically building a tokenized reinsurance platform on-chain. And so generally, they, they like to liken themselves to kind of a decentralized, decentralized Lloyds of London um, by basically connecting accredited investors or even institutional investors with reinsurance opportunities um, in ways that historically they've not had access to. And so this concept of, um, of asset tokenization, which ultimately enables different aspects of the democratization of finance is something that's extremely kind of top of mind and, and topical for a lot of different, uh, use cases. Um, and, and on that last point, I'd say, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight KKR, um, and our partnership with them in Securitize last year who uh, tokenized part of their recent healthcare growth fund on Avalanche um, and basically allowed qualified purchasers on the securitized platform 
with a few clicks to basically subscribe to a tokenized version of their fund with lower than average um, investment minimums. So at a high level, I'd say from an institutional, from a financial institutional standpoint, the different use cases that we're seeing thematically are either kind of along the lines of institutional DeFi and using DeFi rails to power financial services transactions. And then separately, but relatedly, the concept of asset tokenization um, and, and all that that kind of entails and, um, and the possibilities associated with that, I would say, are kind of the two major themes that we're seeing in our partnerships. Well, you've hit the magic word of 2023. You said when we were doing the last, at the last year, the end of year, 2022, we said we'd, the topic next year is going to be tokenization. We know yeah. it's the, the buzzword that's going around now. Uh, I know this because of the people I spend time around. And do you know this because of the people you spend time around? But for those who don't know, sorry, Morgan, you've come too early in the year because otherwise we might have laid this out already in some detail. When we say tokenizing assets, and you said also tokenizing real world assets, like we don't have to go through all the nuts and bolts, but what do we mean by that? And, and yeah. you could use, you could explain it by comparing it to like the system it supersedes, or you could explain it in objective terms, whatever's like kind of easiest. I'm just happy you didn't say RWA because that means something <laughs> very different in the world of traditional finance. And I feel like the crypto industry has adopted this term. And those of us who are really working on driving this forward are on a mission to figure out a better word than RWA. Too many acronyms. And it also shows you a bit of a gulf between the technical folks in crypto land and then the traditional finance people who are yeah, blending totally. over time. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at some point, and we, we, can, we, can go, we can go through this, but basically asset tokenization is all about bringing off-chain assets on-chain, marrying the digital representation with the off-chain asset um, entails again, bridging assets from their primary ledgers in the off-chain world to the digital ledger on-chain and ultimately enabling greater liquidity, more transparency, faster settlements of things, again, like premium, margin, payouts, and fund disbursements. Um, but ultimately, where we're trying to get to down the line is also enabling the ability to not only access, but also to kind of borrow against these assets that are considered historically potentially illiquid and really kind of being able to put idle investments or, or capital to work. Um, so generally, I think, you know, you mentioned we're too early or we're extremely early in the process. I do think we'll get to a point where all assets and, and I think the um, I think this, this, this concept is becoming more and more prevalent in the traditional financial services industry today. But I think we'll get to a point where it's not going to be called asset tokenization or tokenized assets. They'll just be assets and they'll just happen to be tokenized and they'll happen to be running on blockchain technology. But it's just like um, some of my partners, my, my marketing partners like to remind me, they'll say digital marketing was a thing at one point, but now it's just called marketing, right? At some point, DeFi will just become finance. And at some point, asset tokenization will just be assets. So that's essentially where we're trying to get to. But for now, that's, that's kind of the link we're trying to, to establish. Cool. The one I say is uh, people used to talk about e-commerce. Um, yeah. I spent too many years at the OECD and they have measuring, you know, how many people are using e-commerce. And now like, it's just shopping. You just buy it on, <laughs> I bought it on Amazon, you know, exactly. no one says e-commerce. So yeah, that's exactly the same thing. You, you, you see it a lot when new technology comes along, people need to 
put a framework around it to differentiate yeah. it from the, 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 the preceding system. And that's exactly what's happening right now. The other one you mentioned, it was your second case study around the reinsurance stuff. Like I spent a number of years working with insurers and reinsurers. Um, and on the back end, I mean, some of this, the, the legacy IT systems, so it's kind of wild. Um, it was very popular to build um, marketplaces, digital marketplaces for insurance contracts, because the different insurance companies and brokers and reinsurance, they don't speak to one another. Uh, their systems yeah. don't speak to one another is a better way for me to put that. And um, so people have been kind of iterating on this, these legacy rails for years, trying to find ways to kind of squeeze a bit more efficiency out. It's, um, it's a somewhat similar phenomenon here, though I would say it's probably not an incremental change here. It is a step change uh, if everybody jumps on board. The same way like email, the POP3 and SMTP protocols were step changes as well. Uh, yeah. Everyone plugs into email and then suddenly you've just got like this totally different way to communicate uh, compared to what preceded it. I, I suspect that's kind of what we're, we're seeing here at the moment. And I agree with you. At some point, it's just, it's not going to be called DeFi. It's just going to be like finance and how we store information and move it around. And, totally. and there'll be something that comes after it, you know, hopefully as we move forward. Yeah. And I think not one thing you mentioned that I'd want to emphasize is I think just by tokenizing something doesn't solve all the issues, right? It's not tokenization is not the end all be all. And it's not the thing, frankly, that enables the democratization of finance um, that we always like to kind of talk about. It's really the tokenization is one component to the other requirements, which are really the digitization of issuance, uh, fund subscription, administration, management, um, throughout the life cycle of the investment, which makes tokenization um, like economically viable for asset issuers and investors in that um, that whole process makes smaller deal sizes or fractionalization economically viable, where historically having smaller deal sizes in certain instances is just prohibitively expensive because of all the manual ways of doing things, of processing um, certain trades, transactions, and the life cycle of certain things. And so it's that combination that really therefore makes sense to tokenize and to kind of lower the barriers to entry for issuers and investors, um, which I feel like people, you know, in general, isn't, isn't necessarily as like appreciated um, and something that I think we just continue to need to like be banging the table about. Yeah, I mean, good point. It is a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, I have an excellent book somewhere with an excellent quote. Uh, about, it's called The Victorian Internet. And so this person's comparing the telegraph to the internet in terms of how they change society. And this person pointed out the kind of, there were dreams in the late 90s that um, all of this uh, internet-enabled technology would mean that people can work from wherever they are and it would change the structure of organizations because they could kind of be less hierarchical and things like that. And it took 20 years before a pandemic forced everyone to jump on the cloud. And now yeah. here you are, you and I are here doing this like it's the, the most normal thing on the planet, re recording this podcast. It, it doesn't happen overnight. And there's going to be a process of sometimes jarring structural change to potentially to the way certain industries, maybe economy wide, depending on how many use cases are found. 
Uh, it's not going to happen overnight, though. Uh, and it can go very well, wrong as well, as we know from lots of ways of prior technological change. Yeah, but it's it's definitely, I think you would you would agree, it's definitely exciting to kind of be on the forefront of that change and, and having a you know, the ability to firsthand help to kind of shape what that future looks like and frankly is, is a large part of, of why I'm here. Yeah, if you're curious and you like taking risks and you don't mind failing a bit along the way, this is the, definitely a spot you want to be. The rule book's not uh, written and uh, yeah, it's tremendously fun and enjoyable and there's lots to learn as we're going through the episode today. Let's let's segue towards the end because we're, we're coming up on time uh, let's think, and we've just touched on it a little bit here, so maybe we narrow the scope, the future and looking ahead. Um, you could speak in your role at Ava Labs about kind of where you see opportunities cropping up in the future. You've mentioned gaming already, and I, I, after all the venture capital money that went into crypto and blockchain-enabled gaming, listeners, it was the largest segment of, of $28 billion worth of investment last year, and that was during a crippling year macro. So... That might be one gaming, but there might be other ones. I, I, I look to you. Where, where do you see opportunities in the, the medium to long term? Sure. So, I mean, I would say right now, a lot of the way that um, enterprises and institutions are approaching this space, um, I think a lot of them are just trying to think about relatively lower hanging fruit type ways to be able to like dip their toes into the space, generate incremental revenue, um, whether that's with gaming, with NFTs, with um, kind of membership and, and loyalty type rewards programs, things that for them allow them to test out the technology in a relatively lower risk type way and lower barrier to entry type way, which I think we'll continue to see, you know, for sure. Um, I think that just taking a step back and thinking about like the broader opportunities um, and your previous guests on on your podcast may have alluded to this, but stable coins in general, I think a lot of us think about um, as as the killer app, which obviously there there's a ongoing regulatory debate about about stable coins currently, and so I won't necessarily comment further on that. But all the things around payments, FX markets, and things that that can enable, particularly for um, uh, end users in emerging markets. Um, I think we're all very excited about different like payments use cases as well. Um, I also think the ability to use um, DeFi primitives or DeFi applications is kind of the top of the funnel for a lot of whether it's gaming or other type of retail use cases um, and really seeing the merger of these different verticals really starting to happen um, and effectuate, I think is something that we're also very excited about. And frankly, there's probably a ton of use cases that we that just haven't even, you know, been developed at this point from not necessarily incumbents, but from new players in the space that are, you know, really truly developing novel things that will get the next billion users, um, you know, on chain in a way that frankly, obfuscates away the whole blockchain um, wallet, you know, being on chain concept um, in a way that really lowers the barriers to entry and feels like a more traditional experience, um, but in a way that happens to be faster and more interoperable and really kind of opens up the possibilities for, for different retail users. Um, and I think we're all kind of waiting for, waiting to see how that, how that develops, but 
you know, that's the key, I think, is really obfuscating away that end user experience. Um, it's funny, I think sometimes we get asked, um, how would you explain blockchain to your mom? And the answer is you wouldn't or we wouldn't because she doesn't have to know, right? She doesn't need to know how Venmo works. She just needs to know that it works to send money. And so in the same way, I think if and when we get to that point that we don't necessarily have to explain what that pro- like what that on-chain process looks like, I think that's really kind of the, the signal for success and, and a signal that the industry is really kind of uh, taking major steps forward. Yeah, we come to that topic quite often in the discussions on this podcast. So listeners already know my my story about PGP encryption. Um, so I'm not going to tell you that one again. Uh, let's do the one from this episode, POP3 and SMTP. Some people don't even know that there are protocols that underpin their email. Um, they, they would have no idea how the protocols work. And yeah. uh, it doesn't matter exactly. Like, <laughs> I don't want to say who cares because sometimes you want to know what's under the hood to know how it can fail. But when it comes to mass adoption, it, it does tend to be a situation where you don't need to know what's going on under the hood. As you say, it just works. Uh, yeah. it's, it's for whatever reason, it's faster, more reliable, cheaper, whatever dimension or multiple dimension than what came before it. So be it. People will even be patient with something that's suboptimal for a while. And so you get new services. This is kind of why and this is closing out. I suspect what's really nice to see in the, the industry as it's grown and diversified is people being brought in from a design and user experience background. Uh, those skills were lacking early on. Uh, I mean, the technology was built for very niche technical people who knew how to use it barely in many cases like that. Pulling in those kind of people uh, might be the way in which you make stuff that is just usable and you don't have to care what's under the hood. But part of your work uh, is getting the institutions and companies on board, because if there's no one offering services, there's no one offering services, right? Well, I think, Ben, that kind of brings our conversation full circle, right, is that the industry needs a very wide kind of variety and combination of, of people and companies with very different backgrounds to be able to kind of take all these puzzle pieces and put them together in a way that makes the technology more accessible and real for end users, right? And so you need more than just deep kind of technologists and, and devs, you need business people, um, as well as, you know, other types who can kind of, again, toe the line in both worlds and who can kind of make things real for, for the end user. So way to, way to bring it back to the start. Nice one. And with that, it's a very nice note to end on. We are out of time. Morgan, where can people find you on the interwebs and where can they find other labs? Sure. They can find me on the interwebs um, in two places. One on LinkedIn, where it's just, you can find me by searching for my name, which I see right here. Um, and then on Twitter, my handle is Morgan at Morgan Krupetsky. So this minus the space um, is where you can find me on Twitter. And then um, happy to kind of continue the discussion with anyone who's interested from there. Um, and uh and again, also happy to, to connect anyone with, with other people within the Avalabs, eco, uh, Avalabs company or the Avalanche ecosystem as well. Excellent. Well, that was Morgan Krupetsky, Director of Business Development at Avalabs. Morgan, thank you very much for joining me today. 
Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, listeners, if you're in the United States, go to wisdomtreeprime.com, wisdomtreeprime.com. Join the wait list. You won't be disappointed. You can find me as always at the bird app at Benjamin Dean. And as a reminder, if you'd like us to cover any specific topics in a future episode or to find out more, please email cryptoclarified at wisdomtree.com or send us a tweet or just get in touch uh, with Mailing Pigeon. Whatever works for you. We accept many different mediums. Uh, thank you very much for that. Thank you for listening and we hope you have an excellent day.